Uh, Romans chapter 6 is where we find ourselves today. break in the action last week. We, we did not meet because COVID seemed to be going crazy in our church. Uh, hopefully it's more under control this week and we're glad that you are here. The title of the sermon today is Dead to Sin, Alive in Christ and this is part one. It's going to be a two-part sermon and we're going to be looking at Romans 6, 1 through 14. Today we're only going to get through Romans 6 verses 1 through 3 but hopefully it helps us to understand the gospel better, to understand the Christian life better. According to an article at breakpoint.org, quote, the contemporary evangelical church is the most Christian-educated generation of believers in all of church history. Never before has a generation of believers had so many options and opportunities for studying and hearing the word of God. Sermons, Sunday school classes, Bible study groups, TV and radio ministers, retreats, workshops, and seminars abound week after week, month after month, year after year. In addition to these things, we have a seemingly unending number of resources available on the internet as well. You have a veritable monsoon of Christian teaching raining down on the evangelical community every day of the week. The field of the evangelical church is sown and re-sown with the word of God and watered and re-watered with the rain of God's truth. That's pretty amazing. I don't think we often think of that, but we have a lot of opportunities to grow as believers. The article then makes a stunning conclusion. The world complains over and over about our shallowness and hypocrisy. What's wrong? Why is the most Christian-educated generation in all of church history so devoid of the fruit that we should so reasonably expect to find. Uh, those of you familiar with George Barna, he does a lot of different surveys. And he has repeatedly, in study after study, determined that the way Christians behave is not appreciably different from the way non-Christians live their lives. So you've got Christians over here, you've got non-Christians over here, and you look at them and they're pretty much living the same way. Is something wrong with that picture? Yes, I think we would all conclude yes. Um, why do the most educated Christians in church history seem to not be making a big impact in the world? Why do we look so similar to the world when God has called us to be salt and light? I think the answer might be found in our text today. Uh, Warren Wearsby has written, too many Christians are between living in Egypt and Canaan, saved but never satisfied. Or they live between Good Friday and Easter, believing in the cross, but not entering into the power and glory of the resurrection. I think that the problem with many Christians is that many are still living in bondage to sin. They've never broken the sin cycle. And we're going to see some very clear instruction from the Apostle Paul in the passage that we are looking at today. So I'm going to read through um, verses 1 through 14. As I mentioned, we're not going to get to all of those verses today, but just so we have them in our minds and we are familiar with them. And by the way, a little plug, I hope 
you are doing study on your own, okay? Uh, there are volumes and volumes written about Romans. I'm going to be preaching for about a half hour today, okay? I'm not covering everything. Uh, that's on you to dig deeper and to try to get more truths from God's word. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, as we study this passage in Romans 6 today, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds. I pray that the Holy Spirit truly would teach us and that we would apply the things that we learn to our lives so that we might be honoring and glorifying to you. We just thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> as I mentioned, this is going to be a two-part sermon. Uh, so we're looking at part one today, and um, I'd like to do a little bit of a review of what we have learned up to this point in Romans. I'm titling our study of Romans, Understanding the Gospel, because I think Paul is trying to teach us the gospel. What is the gospel? What is involved with the gospel? What is involved if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ? So here are some, some high points that Paul has been teaching up to this point. Remember, he is a trained lawyer. He's presenting things in a very logical fashion. Number one, all have sinned. Uh, we've seen that in the first couple chapters. Number two, all can be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what your past is, you can have new life in Christ. Number three, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And because of what Paul has taught up to this point, he's anticipating a question when we get to chapter 6. And he anticipates the question that some would be sure to ask, if sin increases God's grace, then why shouldn't we keep on sinning so that God's grace can continue to increase? As we will see, the very thought of such a question is very appalling to Paul. Um, so, the outline for the whole um, series here, the, 
the two parts. Number one, our position in Christ. That's what we're going to look at today. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at number two, our provision in Christ, and number three, our practice in Christ. So let's dig in. Point number one, our position in Christ, verses one through three. So to help us understand things better, it's important that I clarify that in chapters four and five, we have been introduced and have been learning about the term justification. Okay, We've talked about justification quite a bit, that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have been declared righteous. Okay, God has declared you righteous if you've placed your faith in Christ. Beginning in chapter 6, we will see that we are not just sinners, but that we are also saints. Okay, Up to this point, we've been viewed as sinners. Now Paul is going to take us and show us that we are saints. While justification takes care of the penalty of sin, sanctification, the subject that we find Paul introducing in Romans 6, addresses the power of sin. Okay, So we've gone from justification, now we're moving to sanctification. Okay, Those are theological terms, but they are important terms. Um, So in chapters 4 through 5, the subject is justification. In 6 through 8, it's sanctification. One commentator writes, there is a sharp turn between Romans 5 and Romans 6. Romans 5 explains how God declares people righteous, and Romans 6 explains how God makes people righteous. So justification is the act whereby God declares you righteous in his eyes. Sanctification is the act whereby God makes you righteous. Let me try to explain the two. Justification happens the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, You are justified. God justifies you. Um, and that's never repeated. It's a one-time situation. Sanctification happens moment by moment by moment as you live your life for Jesus Christ. Justification is an event. Sanctification is a process. It's an ongoing process. Justification happens once and only once. Sanctification is gradual and continuous. Justification cannot be repeated. Sanctification must be repeated. Justification is the work of a moment. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Justification leads to sanctification. Those who are truly born again and are led by the Holy Spirit into a life of growing holiness. So if you've placed your faith in Christ then there should be this desire to grow in Christ. That's called the sanctification process. You're trying to become more and more like Christ in your life. And I think we all know it's a journey, right? It doesn't happen instantly. We are all hopefully involved in that journey. I came across an illustration in Jerry Bridges' book, The Discipline of Grace, that I think helps kind of clarify the the distinction between justification and sanctification. And he writes, during the long years of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, a Russian Air Force pilot flew his fighter plane from a base in Russia to an American air base in Japan and asked for asylum. He was flown to the United States where he was uh, duly debriefed, given a new identity, and set up as a bona fide resident of the United States. In due time, he became an American citizen. The Russian pilot's experience illustrates to some degree what happened to us 
when we died to sin and were made alive to God. He changed kingdoms. He was given a new identity and a new status. He was no longer a Russian. He was now an American. He was no longer under the rule of what was then an oppressive and totalitarian government. Now he was free to experience all of the advantages and resources of living in a free and prosperous country. In effect, this Russian pilot died to his old identity as a Russian citizen and was made alive to a new identity as an American citizen. As an American, all the resources of our government were at his disposal to become, in fact, what he had become in status. But this could not have happened without first changing his status. When we as believers died to sin, we died to a status wherein we were under bondage to the tyrannical reign of sin. At the same time, we were granted citizenship in the kingdom of God, and through our vital union with Jesus Christ, we were furnished all the resources we need to become, in fact, what we have become in status. We have been given all we need to bring the imperative do not let sin reign in your mortal body, into line with the indicative, we died to sin. But this could not have happened without a change in our status. And it is through our legal union with Christ in his death and resurrection that our status has been forever changed. We must count on this and believe it. We must, by faith in God's word, lay hold on the fact that we have died to the reign of sin, and are now alive to God under his reign of grace. Unless we do this, we will find ourselves seeking to pursue holiness by the strength of our own wills, not by the grace of God. So I think that's a good indication of the change that takes place in our lives when we place our faith in Christ. Um, So uh, Paul has been teaching here that as believers we have freedom to not sin, okay? Very, very important concept. Paul is teaching that we have freedom to not sin. Does that mean we are sinless? I think we all know that's not true because we all still sin. But as we look back in our lives, hopefully we are sinning less than we did before because we are growing in Christ, seeking to become like him. Many people today do not live like they should because I think they have been grossly misinformed about God's grace. They think God's grace is licensed to do whatever they want to do. That's a wrong understanding of God's grace. The sins of the world are sins within the church being committed by people who claim to be born again. You name the sin, chances are you will find people that claim to be Christians involved in that sin. Okay, As I mentioned at the beginning, there's not really much difference between believers and unbelievers. Um, Name the sin, homosexuality, adultery, fornication, cohabitation, uh, couples living together not being married, dishonesty, unlawful business practices, theft, the list goes on and on. Sadly, some believers are living in these sins, and here's the key, because they think they have the right to. They think they have the right to live in those sins because, hey, Christ has forgiven all of their sin. That's a misunderstanding of God's grace. W.H. Auden, uh, one of the literary figures of the 20th century, boldly stated, I like committing sins. God forgives them. Do some Christians think like that? 
sadly to say, I think we do. Uh, people like Auden have been misinformed or have a poor understanding of God's grace. They think that if God forgives them, then why does it matter how we live? Perhaps you've heard the term, this is a big word, antinomianism. Okay, basically, it describes the person who says, I am saved, but I can sin any way I want. God will forgive, so why does it matter how I live? I, I say that thinking is called fire insurance. Okay? I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I got the get out of hell free card, but I'm free to live my life however I want. That's a misunderstanding of God's grace. Justification was never intended to be a license for sin, but instead it is liberation from sin. And I would go as far as to say, if you believe like that, thinking that you can go on sinning and sinning, you may not be a believer. You have a misunderstanding. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, put it this way, an unchanged life is a mark of an unchanged heart, and an unchanged heart is a sign of an unregenerate or unsaved life. So he's basically saying, if you're living like that, you may want to check, did you really place your faith in Christ? Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, American pastor, theologian, and writer said, holiness starts where justification finishes. And if holiness does not start, we have the right to suspect that justification never started either. Uh, so we could summarize it this way. Salvation is more than a transaction. It is a transformation. Uh, salvation is way, way more than fire insurance. Okay? And I think we are wrong in evangelism if we present salvation as fire insurance. That's a wrong presentation of the gospel. But sadly, it's been presented that way, and in our minds, we can pick that up thinking, well, I just placed my faith in Christ. I'm good to go. I'm not going to spend eternity in hell. I can do whatever I want now. Well, that's not true, because really, we have a new master. The problem is, we want to stay the master in our lives instead of letting Christ be the master. So, uh, one of the dangers of preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone which I believe is how the Apostle Paul preached, is that we can, it can be interpreted, or shall we say misinterpreted, as saying people have a license to do whatever they wish to do. Let's take a look back at Romans chapter 3, verse 8. I invite you to turn there with me. Romans 3, verse 8. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, as some, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Also, um, basically Paul was well aware of this tendency, and he was always on guard when he made a strong statement about the grace of God, because he, un he knew that people were going to misinterpret what he was saying. Let's turn over to Romans 5.20. Romans 5.20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Um, so Paul has just taught that where sin increases, grace increases. Um, he knew that some would take this and pervert what he was saying, that basically sin increases, the more we sin, the more God's grace is given. 
And an example of that type of thinking is in 1 Corinthians verse, or chapter 5. There was an incestuous relationship within the church, in the Corinthian church. And there were some people in the church who saw nothing wrong with this immoral relationship taking place, thinking that it was such an excellent display of Christian liberty. Oh, we are so loving, we are so accepting. And I believe there are people with the same views today in churches, and that is why sin is accepted in congregations, even to the point, which I really have a hard time with, ordaining people into ministry that are living in sin. But we think we're being so accepting to do that. But it's totally contrary to God's word. Um, and I think it's that kind of thinking is what people use to try to justify their immoral lifestyles. So Paul, in contrast, teaches that it is inconceivable and inconsistent for a born-again believer to persist in sinning to get more grace. Okay, We're going to sin, but our motivation for sinning should not be, oh, God will demonstrate his grace to me. No, he does demonstrate his grace. He did demonstrate his grace for us on the cross, but that does not give us license to sin. So in light of what we've learned, chapter 6 starts by Paul asking a question to clarify what he was teaching. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 once again. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So, uh, Paul had no use for even the slightest thinking that grace encourages sin. Uh, sadly, today and throughout church history, we find people teaching grace, te teaching justification by grace through faith, but they never go on and teach about sanctification. And I think that's the problem. Um, justification and sanctification, I think as Paul does here, needs, need to be taught side by side. Yes, we are justified, but we also should be seeking to be sanctified. So lives lived on half-truths are not good, and Paul was convinced that the Christian learning results in Christian living, that doctrine leads to duty. So... Again, that's why I think it's so important that we are in God's word, that we understand what the Bible says instead of coming up with our own ideas. Education is very important. As we've learned, we are the most Christian-educated society ever in history. But does that equate change? Not necessarily. Ignorance is not bliss. Three times in verses 3 through 10, Paul uses the word no, and if we learn the lesson that Paul is teaching here, I think it's going to revolutionize our lives. So I think this is really, really important stuff. What was our position before we placed our faith in Jesus Christ? Paul describes it. Point A, sin was our former way of life. In verse 2, Paul taught that sin was the former way we lived our lives. Let's take a look back at Romans 3, verses 9 through 10. <clears throat> What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
So before salvation, what was our what was our life like? We were very alive to sin, right? Paul has shown very clearly that all are sinners. We were dead to Christ, alive to sin. We were condemned sinners. And now let's take a look at verse 2. But by no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So in verse 2, Paul teaches that we died to sin. Notice that is in the past tense. It's something that happened in the past. Uh, We died to sin. It's not something we are told to do now. It is something that happened to us in the past if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So we no longer serve the old master, sin. Okay, We've got a new master, it's Jesus Christ. Justification by faith is not simply a legal matter between me and God. It is a living relationship. I am in Christ and am identified with him. Therefore, whatever happened to Christ, is what Paul is teaching here, happened to me. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose in him. And because of this living union with Christ, our position has changed. A believer has a totally new relationship to sin. The truth that we have died to sin is the foundation of this entire chapter. And it's also the foundation for the Christian life. If you get nothing else out of the sermon today, realize that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have died to sin because through Christ you have died to sin. One preacher put it this way, this is not a present tense, we are dying to sin, or a future tense, we will die to sin, or an imperative, die to sin, nor is it an exhortation, you should die to sin. This is a simple past tense, you died to sin. The simple truth is that if you are a believer, you have already died to sin. Okay, Sin is no longer your master. Sin should no longer be the main point or part of your life. It means that you've been set free from the ruling power of sin. It is not normal for a Christian to live in sin because we have died to it. Paul goes on to say, how can you live in it any longer? As I mentioned before, it doesn't mean that we are going to be perfect. Uh, Some people teach that we can be perfect in this life. I don't believe that's true. I've, 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 yet, I, I've met a few people that think they're perfect, but if you look at their lives, they're not really perfect. Okay, um, So I don't think that's true, but it should be that we are a totally different person from who we were before we knew Christ. Um, we should experience power over habitual sin. In other words, as Christians, we will sin, but sinning should be out of character for us, okay? It shouldn't be something that, oh, you think of Joe, you think of the sin that Joe does, okay? Before Christ, yes, you might think that way of Joe. You know, he was, he was an addict or whatever he was that characterized his life. But if he knows Christ, that should no longer characterize his life because Christ should be his master. Um, here are some additional verses that help us understand that. Colossians 3.3, 3, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So sin was a former way of life for us. 
Next, Paul teaches, point B, our position has changed in verse 3. And Paul uses the metaphor of baptism to teach the wonderful realities of living the Christian life. Let's look at verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What is Paul talking about here? I'll try to explain. Those of you that have not uh, followed the Lord in believer's baptism, listen closely. Uh, while baptism doesn't change a person's behavior, what does baptism do? It gives a public testimony of the change that has taken place. You're basically going public with your faith. You're saying, world, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. In the early church, it was unthinkable for a Christian to not be baptized. In the book of Acts, uh, we just finished a study in Acts not terribly long ago. The two events are often, usually, tied right together. Okay? A person accepts Christ, boom, they get baptized. And because of that, I think some people get wrong in their theology thinking that baptism is a part of salvation. It's not because that would be a work. Okay? Salvation is a free gift of God through grace. But baptism is telling others that, hey, I want you to know I'm a follower of Christ now. <clears throat> and in essence, you are saying, I died with Jesus Christ, I was buried with him, and now I am raised to live a new life under his leadership and for his glory from this point on. Um, I'd also like to point, so the whole, if you think of somebody being baptized, okay, um, historians believe that historically baptism was emerge, immersion. I think the Greek words indicate it was immersion. Uh, so if somebody is baptized, what happens? They get dunked, right? They're buried under the water, and then they are raised to walk in newness of life. So <clears throat> in addition to that, I'd also like to point out, when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they are also baptized by the Holy Spirit, okay? They're baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Um, so at salvation, the Holy Spirit identified with you Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And I personally see both spirit baptism and water baptism here. Um, so Paul assumes that believers in Rome have been baptized, okay? He doesn't go on teaching about baptism. He's assuming they have been baptized and uses that as an illustration to try to teach them uh, to identify with Christ's death. How important is it for you to be baptized? You know, you may, you may be sitting there and you've, you know, I, I've heard about baptism. I don't really understand about baptism. What's the big deal? Well, I think it's important because, as I mentioned, you're telling people not only that you are a follower of Christ, but then you are also identifying in his death, burial, and resurrection by the picture that baptism paints. Um, it is your personal identification with the greatest act of human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you're basically saying, hey, that was really important. And it's really important in my life because I've placed my faith in my Savior, Jesus Christ, and I'm identifying with that great event. But you also need to realize that baptism doesn't save you, okay? Baptism does not save you. It doesn't change anything other than that you are identifying with Jesus Christ. It's your personal testimony of what has taken place in your life 
passing from the old life of sin to your new life with Christ. You can think of it this way. Baptism, in essence, is a funeral. You're saying, hey, the old me is gone. The new me is here. And you should live your life accordingly. So I hope you've seen up to this point in Romans the habitual sin, the, the, an ongoing, ongoing, ongoing sin problem can be broken. Okay, It should not be part of the life of a born-again follower of Christ, someone that is growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, we have died. We no longer have obligations to our, own, our old life. We have new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Um, we occasionally hear testimonies of people for membership. Okay, um, Some testimonies, the changes in a person's life is greater than others. But the fact is, all lives have been changed through Christ. And it's exciting to hear those testimonies. If a person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, their lives should be and should look differently than they did before they met Christ. Okay? If you look at your life and you say, huh, nothing's changed. As Spurgeon and as Barnhouse said, you might want to check that salvation decision. Did it really happen? Did it take place? And if not, that's the place to start. Get it right with Christ and then get your life right with him in addition. Um, and I'll close with an illustration. Let's say I have a car that I really, really like and the engine is blown. Okay? I decide to buy a new engine for that car. I take it to the mechanic. The mechanic puts in the new engine. I get it back. And it's like, the engine looks clean, looks nice, but it doesn't run any better than it did before. What would your reaction be? You'd probably say, uh, mechanic, did you just kind of fiddle with the old one, or did you put the brand new one in? I think it's like that with our, our lives in Christ. Are we fiddling with the old life, or have we put a totally new engine into our lives because of Jesus Christ. We've identified with him. We've realized what he's done for us. And therefore, we realize we are dead to sin. Again, doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You will sin in this life. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But our sinning should be less because we're living for Jesus Christ now instead of living for myself. If I'm living for myself, I want to gratify myself and do whatever I can to do that. If I'm living for Jesus Christ, I want to glorify him. I want him to be pleased with the life that I'm living. So it should make a difference. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Let's live like it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this truth that the Apostle Paul was teaching. If we are truly saved, we have died to sin in Christ and that we are really raised, we've been baptized with him and we are raised to live a new life. The Holy Spirit resides in us. We have your word, and we can be transformed people. But we have to let you do that work. And I pray that if there would be people here today, Lord, that think, you know, I can play with sin. It's not a big deal. God just forgives it. That they would really understand 
that they have died to sin and that they are called to live a sanctified life, that they should be becoming more like Jesus the longer they live their lives in Christ. Help us not to be like we were before we were saved. Help us not to revert back to those sinful times, but help us to live realizing what we have in Christ, that we have victory over sin, and that we can live lives in a way that would bring honor and glory to him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.